Chapter 10 of Autobiography of an Actress by Anna Cora Mollick. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Autumn did not find me sufficiently re-established in health to resume my public readings as was proposed. This was a heavy disappointment but i was well enough for less fatiguing occupation so little had been saved from the wreck of our fortune that there was strong need for exertion i wrote a series of lively articles under the nom de plume of helen berkeley they were published in various popular magazines and i was well remunerated these articles consisted of sketches of celebrated persons with whom I had been brought into communication, and humorous articles, generally founded on fact. The larger portion of them have since appeared in London magazines. Several were translated into German and reprinted. Under my own name, I at that time published nothing but verse. I had half determined to attempt a tale of some length, and was pondering upon the subject when a friend informed me that the New World newspaper had offered one hundred dollars for the best original novel in one volume. The title must be The Fortune Hunter, and the scene laid in New York. The novel must be completed in one month or within six weeks at the latest. Why do you not try what you can do, said my friend? Write a story in your Mrs. Berkeley style you can easily make the title apply. Ten to one, your novel will be the one accepted. Thus encouraged, I lost no time, and that very day made the sketch of a plot, which I submitted to my counsellor and friend. He approved, and I went to work diligently. At the time appointed, the book was completed. It was presented to the New World Publishers, and the note for one hundred dollars sent me in return was the most agreeable evidence of its acceptance. The fortune hunter had an extensive sale, and, after my identity with Mrs. Berkeley became known, the publishers chose to affix my name to the work. The copyright being theirs, my consent was not even asked. I was very much amused by an article that appeared in one of the papers accusing me being an imitator of Mrs. Berkeley, and more than hinting that the imitation fell far short of the original. The Fortune Hunter has lately been translated into German. I continued to write for various magazines, the Columbian Democratic Review, Ladies' Companion, Gaudy's, Graham's, etc., I used fictitious names and sometimes supplied the same number of a magazine with several articles, only one of which was supposed to be my own. I also prepared for the press a number of works, the copyrights of which were purchased by Messrs. Burgess and Stringer. They were principally compilations, with as much or as little original matter as was found necessary. Book Cement to make the odd fragments adhere together. The subject of these books were not of my own choosing. I wrote to order, for profit, and to supply the demands of the public. In this manner were produced Housekeeping Made Easy, 
the name of Mrs. Ellis was not affixed by me, Book of the Toilettes, Cookery for the Sick, Book of Embroidery, Knitting and Crochet, Etiquette for Ladies, Ballroom Etiquette, and similar publications, the very names of which I cannot remember now. These books, especially the first, proved very profitable, so much so that Mr. Mawick concluded that he would derive greater benefit by publishing the works I compiled himself than by selling the copyright to other publishers. He accordingly established a firm, and his books were supplied chiefly by me. The success of the undertaking was of brief duration. My time was wholly engrossed in bookmaking, but, having now more freedom of choice as regarded the works I prepared, cookery books and books on etiquette were gladly abandoned. I found more congenial occupation in abridging a life of Goethe, and another of Madame Dobray. The pleasure, however, was of particularly private nature, for the books proved unsaleable. Not a little disheartened by their failure, I returned to my labors in a less interesting but more lucrative field of literature. I could not drudge always, for the book compiling was unmitigated drudgery, and during leisure moments I amused myself by writing Evelyn, a domestic tale in two volumes. Frederica Bremer's works, translated by Mary Howitt, were my favorites amongst modern novels. The delight with which I perused them undoubtedly influenced the style in which Evelyn was written. Evelyn herself was not an ideal creation. I could never write mere fiction. I needed a groundwork of reality. Her history was that of one whom I dearly loved, over whose tomb there were few to weep but whose sin we may dare hope was forgiven, for she loved much. When the book was completed, an English literary gentleman proposed that I should allow him to take the manuscript to London and have it published there previous to its appearance in this country. I consented, and a few months later received a notice from a London publisher that he would purchase the English copyright and produce the book if I would write a third volume. He assured me that nobody purchased novels in two volumes. All the popular writers of the day extended their romances to three. As a second volume of Evelyn ends with the heroine's death, I did not see how I could, with propriety, bring her to life and prolong her miseries. The offer of the London publisher was politely declined. Evelyn was published, and originally written by Carey and Hart of Philadelphia. Owing to the delay occasioned in regaining possession of the manuscript, the work was not produced until I had made my debut upon the stage. This event probably accounted for its rapid sale. The copyright fortunately remained in my own possession. A rather singular violation of this copyright took place in Cincinnati. The book was abridged into one volume and published, with a wretched frontispiece, as a sort of souvenir for young ladies. The word London was to be found upon the title page, but the type paper, and general getting up of the book betrayed this to be a mere rousse de guerre. This mangled edition 
also appears to have had a sale. Its existence was a source of much annoyance, but could not be prevented without the institution of legal proceedings. These were not taken. Incidents of a different nature belong to this period. Mary Howitt, in her memoir of me, makes affectionate mention of three orphan children who were protected and educated by Mr. Mowat and myself as though the act were one of premeditated and intentional charity. This was not so. I should consider our first acquaintance and the whole intercourse with the family of the Greys as merely accidental. Could I believe that word applied to any event of life? Providential. It certainly was to them and we were but unconscious instruments in the hand of a higher power. The circumstances which led to our becoming interested in the children of the Greys were these. Returning from a drive one severely cold day in November, I noticed a little beggar girl, thinly clad, who was seated upon our doorsteps, sobbing violently. She cried like a child in real distress. I stopped to ask what ailed her, and could gain no answer but tears. As I was still an invalid, and dared not remain in the cold, I told the servant to make the little girl come into the parlor and talk with me. She was brought in with some difficulty, but gradually the warm fire thawed her half-frozen limbs, and perhaps her heart. "'Tell me what you are crying about,' had been repeated some twenty times, in all the varieties of coaxing intonations before I could gain a reply. At last her tongue was loosened, and she sobbed out, Mother's very ill, and they say she is dying. Father's got no work, and sent me out for cold victuals. But I can't get nothing, and your cook turned me out of the kitchen. Little Esther's grief was too genuine for me to doubt her story. I inquired where her mother lived, the distance was very short. I had not thrown aside my hat and coat. It was very easy to accompany her home. She took me to a dilapidated building, and we entered a small, close room. Upon a cot in one corner lay a young woman whose ghastly features betokened acute suffering. A puny infant about two or three weeks old rested upon her arm. The little creature was moaning piteously, but seemed too feeble to cry. Instead of the plump ruddiness of first babyhood, its face was as pallid as that of the mother, and far more wrinkled. The woman told me her history. It was one of utter destitution. She added that she believed herself to be dying, but her chief anxiety was for her children. I promised to visit her occasionally, and to interest others in her behalf, and left, desiring her to send little Esther to see me the next morning. Esther was a dark-eyed, bright little creature, and I thought affectionate. When she came in that morning, I sent her home to tell her mother that, if the latter chose, I would keep the child to run errands and wait upon me, and that I would take as good care of her as I could. I had no particular use of her, but I loved the presence of childhood about the house. The mother returned her thanks and hearty consent. With the assistance of my sisters, Esther was soon furnished with a suitable wardrobe, and her ragged, coal ritual clothes, as she used to call them, were exchanged for neat and comfortable attire. She seemed happy in her new home and gave me little trouble. 
I accompanied her to see her mother at short intervals. For a month the poor woman grew gradually worse. One Sunday afternoon Esther rushed into the room, greatly agitated, and said, Come quickly to see my mother. She is dying. I went. The room was filled with Roman Catholic friends of the dying woman who were performing the last ordinances of their religion. They drew back and allowed me to approach the bed with the child. The mother tried to speak, but she could not. She feebly lifted her hand, looked in my face, and smiled as the dying only can smile. A few moments afterwards, she expired. Esther, for some days, was almost inconsolable for the loss of her mother, and was often at home, taking care of her baby sister. I wish I were not compelled to allude to the father, one of the coarsest specimens of an Irishman that could well be found. In less than a week after his wife's funeral, he called upon Mr. Mowat and demanded wages for his daughter, a child not yet ten years of age. Mr. Mowat explained to him that she was only allowed to remain in the house to please me, that she was too young to be of any service, and that all indebtedness was on the side of the parent. The man rudely replied that, if he couldn't get pay for her, she would be taken home immediately. He knew that I was attached to the child, and supposed that we would yield to his demands rather than part with her. His threat was put into execution, and the weeping little girl was taken back to her former wretched home. It is proverbial that one's neighbors have an acute knowledge of one's domestic affairs. Our neighbors had remarked, the transformation of the little cold victual girl into a neatly dressed, merry-looking attendant. They had become acquainted with the history of the mother and the ungracious conduct of the father. His ingratitude was a theme constantly discussed. I was, of course, duly pitied for having had anything to do with such a man, and the little I had accomplished for the child was greatly exaggerated and lauded about ten times as much as it deserved to be. The remark of a seamstress who was sewing for our opposite neighbors was repeated to a domestic of mine. If Mrs. Mowat is fond of children and cares anything about poor people, said the seamstress, I wish somebody would tell her of the Greys, an English family who are living in Harlem. They are people that have seen better days, but the father is blind. There are several children. One of them is a sweet little girl, a much finer child than that Esther, and they are actually starving. This speech was communicated to me. It did not make any particular impression at the time, but the next day the words kept coming into my head again and again, and I could not help wondering whether the Greys were really starving, whether anything could be done for them, whether I should not like the little girl in Esther's place, etc., etc. Very soon I could think of nothing else, the greys were always in my mind. I could not sleep without dreaming of them, or wake without longing to know something of their history. I could not interest myself in my usual occupations. I was thoroughly idle, restless, and uncomfortable. Two days passed thus, and on the third I came to the conclusion that I would drive to Harlem. I was seldom allowed to venture out at all in very cold weather. This was a much longer drive than I was considered able to take, therefore I said nothing of my determination to Mr. Mowat. I knew he would object on the plea of my health. As soon as I was left alone, I dispatched a message to our opposite neighbor, 
requesting that she would send me the address of the Greys. The answer returned was that the seamstress who had spoken of them had gone home. She had said that they lived somewhere in Harlem, and that a Mr. G., who kept a hotel there, knew all about them, and he could answer for their respectability. She knew nothing of the people herself. This information was scanty enough, but in my restless and excited state of mind it sufficed. I sent for a carriage, and told the coachman to drive to Harlem, and stop at the first hotel. The carriage stopped after what seemed to my impatience a very long drive. Is Mr. G. the proprietor of this hotel? was the inquiry made to the waiter, who, with an air of great empressement, opened the carriage. No, ma'am. Do you know what hotel in Harlem he keeps? The answer was also in the negative. We drove to another hotel, and still another, but at both the existence of any Mr. G. was ignored. At a fourth, the proprietor himself chanced to be standing on the piazza. In answer to the usual question, he somewhat pompously proclaimed his own proprietorship and offered to hand me out of the carriage. I wish you could tell me at what hotel Mr. G. keeps. I am very anxious to find it out, I said to him, in a somewhat appealing manner, for I was beginning to get discouraged. I know all the hotels hereabout, and there's no Mr. G. that keeps any of them. You'll find mine as good as the best of them, ma'am. It is Mr. G. himself I want. Do you know any person in Harlem of that name? There's an individual that keeps a place where they sell spirits, and his name is G, but I don't suppose that's what the lady wants, replied the man, with so decidedly insolent an expression that it took some courage to address him again. Be so good as to give my coachman the direction, I managed to reply. I was becoming tremblingly alive to the folly of my expedition. After a rude stare and an evident inclination to indulge me with some further remarks, probably upon the eccentricity of my taste and conduct, the man obeyed. We drove to the place where spirits were sold. Mr. G. lived there, but was not at home. I sent for Mrs. G. She was also out. The message was brought by a little girl about eight or nine years old. Is there not anybody in the house to whom I can speak? I inquired of her. Only me. Everybody is out. Does your father know the Greys, an English family who live somewhere in Harlem? Is that the blind Mrs. Mr. Gray? Yes, I believe he's blind. Oh, we know him, and Mrs. Gray, and the children. Are they poor? The little girl laughed. The little girl laughed, as though she already understood the distinction between rich and poor, and replied, Well, I guess they be. I asked her to tell the coachman where they lived. I never expected him to find the place when I heard her puzzling direction of, After you turn the corner, you go to the right, then down to the left, then take the first street, etc., and etc. But he did find it without so much difficulty. The house, 
or shanty, as it might more properly be called, stood back some distance from the road. The snow lay on the ground at least a foot deep. There was no pathway through it to the door. The coachman, who was accustomed to drive me, begged that I would sit still until he had trampled it down to form a narrow path. I then alighted, and he remained with the horses. No answer came to my repeated knockings at the street door. I opened it and went in. I knocked at the first door within. No answer. I opened it. The room was empty both of furniture and inhabitants. I tried room after room, but with the same result. While I was still searching, a large dog started from some unnoticed corner and leaped upon me as though to be caressed. This was the first sign of life that I beheld. I made friends with the dog as best means of self-defense. After playing about me in a manner which seemed a dumb welcome, he ran to a sort of outer building, so I think it was, and I followed. Here he scratched at the door, and I thought it advisable to knock. Come in, said the voice of a man. I entered a room where poverty had undisputed reign. The floor was bare. Scarcely an article of furniture was to be seen. In the center of the room stood a small stove, but the fire had quite died out, though it was a piercingly cold day. In front of the stove lay a little boy, half-naked and shivering with the cold. Upon a small wooden box sat a baby, strapped by its waist to the back of the chair. Beside them, so close to the stove, that his clothes must have burned had there been any fire within, said the father. "'Can you tell me if Mr. Gray lives here?' I asked upon entering. The man rose with a kind of dignity that I did not look for in so rude a place, and, bowing, answered, "'My name is Gray.' He advanced to find me a chair, but with uncertain steps and one hand extended as though feeling his way. By his movement only could one have divined that he was blind. His eyes were large, of a clear light blue, and did not seem to me wholly expressionless. He was tall, well-made, and handsome, in spite of the traces of suffering upon his countenance. I could not but notice the courtesy of his manner as he bowed on offering me the seat. I entered into conversation with him. His language was not that of an uneducated man. I drew from him his history, though he was evidently inclined to be reserved. He had been cheated by his partner while conducting a prosperous business, either in England or Ireland, I forget which. His partner had absconded, and Mr. Gray, totally ruined, had brought his family to America, in hope of almost digging gold in the streets. Shortly after his arrival in New York, his eyes began to trouble him, and soon he became so blind that he could barely distinguish light from darkness. His wife tried to get work. Sometimes she obtained a little sewing, sometimes a little washing, but often she could get no employment at all. They had no friend but Mr. G., who had known them in the old country. He had been very kind, but he had family of his own. Had he not helped them, they must have starved. I inquired after Mr. Gray's wife. She was out, and his little daughter Margaret was also absent. He hoped they would bring back something to make the fire burn. This winter weather was so hard upon the little boys. 
I looked upon the baby faces turned wonderingly to mine. They were blue with cold. I could not ask whether his wife was gathering chips for the fire or whether she was endeavoring to obtain money to purchase fuel. There was something about the bearing of the man that would have made anyone guarded in running the risk of wounding his feelings. I told him that, if I liked his little girl, I might take her to live with me, then gave him my address, and expressed a desire that his wife would call the next day with the child. I returned home just in time to prevent alarm at my long absence. Had the result of the expedition been different, I should have regarded it as quixotic, Dorcasina-ish, in the extreme. The next morning brought Mrs. Gray and the little daughter. The former did not impress me so favorably as her husband, but the sweet face of the child, with its large, blue, frightened eyes, won spontaneous interest. She was nine years old, but small for her age, and thin almost to emaciation. Her fair hair fell in disordered masses to her waist. Her features were pinched and sharp, and she had the look of quiet suffering which it was so painful to behold in the countenance of childhood. The mother joyfully consented to leave little Margaret with me. It was arranged that the family should remove from Harlem to New York to more comfortable apartments. The influence of my friends could readily procure for her work or needful assistance. The mother departed, and the little girl, with her piteous expression of face, stood trembling at my knee. She seemed almost heartbroken when her mother kissed her for good-bye, but she dared not cry. Ill-usage had so thoroughly crushed her spirit that it seemed to have deprived her of the childish relief of tears. Of that brutal usage we had ample proof when her tattered garments were removed. Her fragile person was literally covered with blue and yellow bruises the consequence of severe blows. These had not been received from her parents, so she told me, but from one to whom poverty had forced them to entrust her. Though it was December, her garments were but three in number, and of summer-suited materials. Busy fingers plied their needles that day, some of them more used to the pen than the needle, but retaining a feminine affection for the latter. A little girl sat by the fire that evening, bending towards the genial heat as though she were making a new acquaintance. In her neat blue dress and white bib, with her fair hair smoothed and cut, it was only in the painful expression of her face that little Margaret of the morning could be recognized. Her countenance still wore a look of strange apprehension. It was months before it lost that mournful expression, many months before I ever saw her smile. The first time I heard her sing, I had noiselessly entered the room where she was at work. Her voice gushed out rich and clear as the song of a bird. She gave a start of terror when she saw me, and, on my bidding her sing on, burst into tears. The child of nine years old was already a skeptic to the existence of kindness. But I must shorten my narrative of the Greys. Little Margaret remained with us, beloved and learning to love. Her parents and infant brothers removed to New York. Medical aid failed to restore her father's sight. 
Her mother worked incessantly to support her little family, but had a bitter struggle with poverty. In less than a year from the day I wandered through the empty house at Harlem and was guided by a dog to the back building where the blind man sat, all that was mortal of him was lying in a coffin. In four more weeks, another coffin entered the room from which his mortal remains had been removed, and Margaret and her brothers were weeping over the corpse of their mother. They had two elder sisters, but neither in circumstances to provide for the little orphans. The elder boy, John, a gentle, delicate little fellow of about six years old, was evidently ill. His disease was the same that his mother's had been, inflammation of the lungs. That he should be instantly cared for was imperative, and we took him home to nurse. One of the neighbors to the Greys took charge of little Willie. The elder boy was ill for nearly two months, but so patient and docile that he gave but little trouble. He sometimes had to be left alone for hours, but we always found him either singing merrily or with his toys and picture books laid on the bed beside him and always happy. When the pale, feeble little fellow began to wander about the house, he was in nobody's way, but even tried to make himself useful and share his sister's light duties. I used to send Margaret on a weekly visit of inquiry after the youngest child. One day she returned, sobbing so loudly that I heard her before she entered the room where I was sitting. My little brother, little Willie, poor little Willie, was all she could say. At first I thought the child was dead, and reproached myself for having bestowed so little care upon him. As soon as Margaret could speak, she told me that he had been ill with the measles and was just recovering, but the people where he was staying said they could be burdened with him no longer. They had arranged to send him that very day to the orphan asylum. The weeping child ended her tale with, Don't let him go. Let me bring him here. Only let me bring him here for a little while. Her grief was so persuasive that I could not resist her entreaties. An hour after, she came into the room again, staggering under the weight of the little boy in her arms, but this time her face was covered with smiles. Willie was about two years old, an apple-dumpling-shaped, rosy-cheeked little boy who could just toddle about and prattle in an unintelligible language. I had no intention of keeping him, no fixed intention towards children at all. They were quiet, manageable, and winning. Mr. Mawet took a ready interest in them. They grew into his affections as rapidly into mine. They were my pupils, and if they added much to my cares, they contributed as largely to my joys. Little by little, they became an acknowledged part of our small household. At first, we anticipated finding some person or persons who would like to adopt the two boys. No such party sprang up, and the idea was tacitly abandoned, or rather, it was gradually forgotten. When new reverses caused me to enter a profession, the children found protection for a short period in the homes of my sisters. Mr. Mawet went through the necessary forms and became their legal guardian. Before we sailed for Europe, a highly respectable family in Connecticut, the state of steady habits, received the two boys as boarders and treated them as tenderly as though they had been their own children. The lads attended day school regularly and prospered in all ways. They have remained at Greenfield Hall until this period, 
and are now a couple of fine, frank, true-hearted boys, who have repaid by their gratitude and all good conduct all the care and love that have been bestowed upon them. Three miles distant from the residence of the boys, little Margaret was placed at school with a family of equally excellent, equally kind, with that to which we entrusted her brothers. When I returned from England four years afterwards, returned alone, I could scarcely believe that tall, graceful girl who threw herself into my arms, weeping with joy, was the tiny Margaret I had left. I could not help seeing, in thought, the bruised, emaciated child, who, shivering with cold and fear, stood before me on that memorable December morning. I felt that she was heaven entrusted to my care. If her mature womanhood fulfilled the promise of her girlhood, I have nothing more to ask. I must not close the history of these children without relating a singular circumstance in connection with them. Until quite recently, I knew nothing of their parentage but what I have related above. The Reverend Mr. A., visiting Greenfield, where the boys are living, noticed the children and inquired who they were. To his surprise, he found that their parents had belonged to the parish in Harlem, of which he was pastor. He had baptized little Willie. He had been informed by the Mr. G., after whom I had made such a singular search, that they were of good family and had wealthy bachelor uncles, with other particulars that may at some future day be advantageous to the children, but which I have taken no pains as yet to authenticate. End of chapter 10